Good morning, everyone. It is great to be back with you all again. Our text this morning, if you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Hebrews chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 18. This is God's Word for us this morning, so let's pay careful heed to it. Hebrews 2, beginning with verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." This is God's word. Please pray with me as we prepare to hear it preached. Father, there is no falsehood in your sacred word. It's true. You wrote it, all of it. Yet there is much falsehood in us, so that if we will hear your truth, if and embrace your truth and love your truth, we need your spirit of truth to give us ears to hear. And it's for that we now make our prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's a little pastoral epigram. I'm sure you've heard it. It's often used to to highlight the fundamental task of preaching. You've probably heard it. It goes like this. The job of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. (laughs) I think that's pretty good advice. You know, if you want to have a balanced ministry, that's pretty good advice. Well, This is what the writer of Hebrews certainly did. All through the book, if you read it, he, he alternates between passages of comfort and sections of, frankly, very disturbing exhortations. In chapter 1, 
If you recall, he, he was primarily concerned with to comfort the afflicted. And he did this, if you recall, by giving them a wide-ranging summary of the superiority of Christ. Christ is superior to the prophets and their message because he is the final word of God. The author says he's the heir of all things. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint uh, of, of God's nature. He's the only one who can purify our sins. He's superior to angels, and they worship him because he's God. And this grand vision of Christ was, was meant to be a firm anchor in the storm of persecution that these people were going through. And then he moves on in the beginning of chapter 2. He, he shifts his focus and he afflicts the comfortable, whose anchors have begun to, to lift from Christ. And he issues a, a ringing warning in verse 3. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. Be careful, he says. Pay the closest attention to what I've told you about this Christ, lest you you begin to drift away from him. And now in this passage before us, he returns back to comforting the afflicted. You know, the smallness of this congregation, uh, it's probably, I don't know, it's probably just a small house church and the persecution that they were experiencing, it left them feeling lonely, left them feeling insignificant and unimportant. And so the writer here lays out in these verses four great works that Jesus' death and resurrection has accomplished on their and on our behalf. In verses 5 through 9, he says that Jesus' death and resurrection has recaptured our lost destiny. And then in verses 10 through 13, he says that Jesus has recovered our lost unity. Verses 14 and 15, he has released us from bondage to Satan. And then finally in verses 16 through 18, Jesus restores us when we fail, when we fall. So let's just spend a few moments this morning looking at each of these great works in turn. First, Jesus, by his great salvation has recaptured for us our lost destiny. You know, these people were feeling pretty small and insignificant and forgotten. They were being ridiculed by the Jewish leaders. They were being ridiculed by their own family members. Uh, Some of them were even in prison. They were isolated. Many of these people had had their property either destroyed or confiscated. Things were going south for these people in a hurry. But in verses 5 through 9, the author counters all this by showing how Christ, through his superiority, gives them massive, massive significance in his ultimate destiny for them. You know, the author clearly implies here in verse 5 that angels co-minister the present world under God's direction, and the the Scripture certainly bears that out. You know, that's what Jacob's vision, if you recall, of the latter over in Genesis 28 was all about. Because as he looked at this ladder, he saw angels going up to heaven and, and coming down. 
And I think one of the messages seems to be that there's angelic commerce, business, administration between heaven and earth on behalf of God's people. Chapter 1, verse 14 says that angels are to minister to those who are to inherit salvation in this present world. That's their function. And so significant is the angels' administration of this present world that many of these people probably expected that that wasn't going to ever to change, that angels would also rule over God's kingdom through the ages. But that's not the case, as verse 5 says here. Verse 5 says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. You know, if God doesn't use angels in the world to come, then who will he use? And I think the answer comes as a surprise to those who read on. It's man. God's ultimate intention is to have his kingdom ruled by redeemed men and women. Whoa. (laughs) Do you mean to say that these These insignificant people in that harried little church, a minuscule dot in the Roman Empire, were one day going to run the whole show under God's direction and oversight? Yes, that's what these verses say. Now the author goes on, And he says that this ultimate destiny of redeemed people is in perfect accord with God's original intentions for humanity. And as proof of that, he quotes here Psalm 8, verses 6 through 8. And that's a psalm that celebrates God's original intention for man. You know, if you go back and you look at that psalm, you'll see that David, who wrote it, he's contemplating the heavens uh, of an evening sky with all of its stars. And he's so overwhelmed with the greatness of God that he can't contain himself. He bursts into praise to God, first celebrating God's majestic name. Then he declares God's worthiness of praise. And next, wondering at God's intention for puny, weak little man. And so he says, God, when I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and of the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now we know that this destiny of man wasn't new. It was originally spelled out in Genesis. God created man to be fruitful and increase in numbers to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You see, this is what God originally intended for man. And you know, and when you consider that, it literally takes your breath away. It's stupendous. God's original intent was to put everything in subjection under the feet of man. But there's a problem here. We don't yet see everything in subjection to man. 
when you and I look at man, he's not subjecting anything. In fact, he's subjected to everything. He's subjected to tornadoes, terrorism, earthquakes, disease, cancer, war, and particularly he's subject to death. We have little or no control over those things. Well, why is that? Well, you know the answer. It's a result of man's sin. Man's original destiny was restricted by Adam and Eve's sin. You know, when when Adam sinned, the earth was corrupted. He immediately lost his kingdom. He lost his crown. He was banished from the garden. And because all mankind fell in Adam, we, we don't now see the earth subject to man. We see the earth resisting him. He has to work. We see murder and death, terrorism, other things. Man lost his crown, and he lost mastery of, him, of himself, as well as, as mastery of the earth. That's the bad news. The good news is that man's destiny, restricted by sin, has been recovered by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's precisely what verse 9 says in our text today. The curse of man's lost destiny is death. The cross of Christ conquered that curse. The kingdom will be restored, and man will be given the crown again. Well, how's that, how, how's that going to happen? For all sinners, how can we become sinless? The only payment for sin is death. So the only way this destiny of man to rule the world to come is to have the curse of death removed. And we still ask, how? I think we know intuitively even without God's revelation, that we cannot do that ourselves. It has to be done for us by Jesus. You see, to accomplish this great work on our behalf, Jesus had to become a man. He had to be made for a little while lower than the angels. To regain man's dominion, he had to taste death for man. You know, if a man dies for his own sin, he's doomed to hell. But Christ came to die for us because in his dying, he could conquer death. So the first Adam sinned, and you and I fell with him. We all forfeited the incredible destiny promised to us way, uh, way back in Genesis 1. It's also in Psalm 8 that we just read. But the second Adam Jesus Christ took all that curse and sweat and condemnation upon himself, and he created a new humanity. Go back and read Romans 5, verses 12 through 18. He talks about that there. Dear ones, those who identify themselves with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection and receive him by faith as Savior, for those people, the curse of death is removed. And we become joint heirs with him in his eternal kingdom. What a great destiny Jesus has recovered for us. 
Dear ones, you and I are not insignificant. As God's children, we are the objects of astounding attention. God is minutely mindful of us, cares for us in the greatest detail. Even the hairs on our head are numbered. Christ on the cross is the measure of our worth. And Christ on the throne is a prophecy of our significance and sure dominion in the world to come. That's a great work, isn't it? It's a great, great work. Jesus has recaptured our lost destiny for us. And that should be a great comfort for anybody who's afflicted. There's a second great work Jesus did for us. He recovered our lost unity. And verses 10 through 13 speak of that. You know, even though the Father was in complete control of all the forces and events of the universe, everything existed for him, was created by him, even though that was true, it was still necessary that he subject his beloved son to a degree of suffering that alone would fit him to carry out his purpose of bringing many sons to glory. You see, that's the meaning of made perfect through suffering that you see there in verse 10. Now, Jesus has always had a perfect character. He didn't need improvement. He, he was sinless. But before the incarnation, he had never been subjected to suffering. And he needed to experience all that as a man. You know, he had to go through this whole process of, uh, of incarnation, earthly ministry, death and resurrection, to be perfected as our Savior. This word founder that you find there in verse 10, it's a very interesting word. You know, in other Bibles, one of your translations, it may be translated pioneer, captain, leader, author. And it implies someone who originates a plan or program for others to follow. You know, I, I recently read a, a book, uh, maybe you've read it, Stephen Ambrose's Pulitzer Prize winning book, Undaunted Courage. It's a wonderful book. It's about Lewis and Clark's expedition to find a way from St. Louis to the Pacific coast. And one of the things which really impressed me about that book was the tremendous preparation. You know, the special provisions, wise decisions involved in planning that expedition. You know, if you know the story, you know that it was accomplished through great danger, a lot of hardships. But when they returned... The whole American West lay open to development. Now, see, that's the thought behind this word translated here as founder. Jesus, our pioneer, blazed the trail for us. Now, he opened up a completely new spiritual country, the realm of universal dominion for his redeemed people, which was originally intended for us, but it was lost by Adam. Those who follow Jesus are now fitted and trained to live in that new world as they walk in the footsteps of him who has gone before. And I, I think, you know, this concept, it fits right in with the thoughts of verses 11 through 13, which describe the Savior and his redeemed as belonging to one family who share the same nature. 
You know, the process of sanctifying, of making holy, implies the imparting of a new life, the life of God himself into his people. And so those who by faith become sons and daughters of God, they're sanctified because they share the life of the Son of God. You know, John 1.12 says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And because of this shared life, the writer of Hebrews can say that they are literally all of one. They are all of one. They all have one origin or all belong to the same family. It says here that Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He's the one who has made them holy by imparting his own life to them. He certainly isn't going to deny the very holiness that he's given. And to support this wonderful fact, the writer of Hebrews uses three texts here from the Old Testament. The first is Psalm 22, verse 22. And it reflects the praise of the resurrected Lord as he shares with his brothers and sisters the glories of God's grace. The second text is from Isaiah, Isaiah 8, verse 17. It expresses the common sense of dependence, which all of God's children share toward him. And then finally, the third text is Isaiah 8, verse 18. It recognizes the relationship of children as all equally under the care of one father. What a great work this is that Jesus has done for us. By his death and resurrection, he has made perfect and has been reconciled. He's reconciled us to God the Father. You and I are in Christ. We're united to him. We're his younger brothers and sisters. And we can boldly approach our Father and we can call him Abba because of that intimate family relationship. And that should be a great comfort for anyone who is afflicted. That's the second work of Jesus on our behalf. A third work is that Jesus has released us from bondage to Satan. That's what verses 14 and 15 are all about. In verse 14, the writer declares, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. First of all, I would just have you note that that's a very clear description of the incarnation. And it fully answers the notions that Jesus' humanity somehow wasn't real, that it was just some phantom appearance, that he wasn't a real man. No, he was real enough. And the startling claim of this verse is that he became a flesh and blood man so that he would be able to die. You know, Charles Wesley's great hymn, And Can It Be, which we're going to sing here in just a few minutes, puts it this way. Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore that strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. How in the world can the immortal God die? How is that possible? 
You know, that's something which Wesley says that, that even the angels, the seraphs, couldn't figure out. But the Son of God solved it by becoming flesh and blood. He took upon himself our humanity. God can't die, but man can. And Jesus the man came to die. And he had to die if he was to deal with this great enemy of all flesh and blood, death. And behind death, the writer of Hebrews sees the power of Satan who uses God's righteous judgment against sin to bring death to all human beings who sin. But here's the great work in our behalf. When God's Son willingly entered the realm of death on our behalf, He couldn't be held there. Why? Because He was sinless. He never sinned. And by His resurrection... He broke the power of death over anybody who would accept his invitation to share his risen life. Now, we still die physically, but for believers, the sting of death is gone. Satan has been rendered toothless. The grave no longer has its victory. We die and we immediately go right into God's presence. And that's not just some blessing that we get when we die. We get it right now. And that we're freed, we are freed from the fear of death and the slavery that results from that fear. You know, people, they don't want to admit it. But it's the fear of death which creates all this what I call frantic restlessness that we see today in so many people. That unsatisfied restlessness, that yearning for for what we can't seem to find, I think is at least partly what the writer here means by lifelong slavery. Like a slave bound to a cruel master, Human beings find themselves forced to keep searching for what they can never find on their own. They try everything. Drugs, sex, amassing wealth, searching for adventure, falling in and out of love, gaining the toys of success, satisfying every whim, but nothing satisfies. There may be some momentary pleasure and and fun, but seldom is there everlasting peace and contentment. And soon everything palls, and the search starts all over again. It's a vicious cycle. It's a lifelong bondage. It's a lifelong slavery, and the quest never, ever ends until life itself does. Death death is a topic that most people don't like to talk about. People don't like to be reminded that one day they will die. So to many folks, death can be a very foreboding and frightening thing. They're a slave to the fear of death. You all know Woody Allen. 
Woody Allen, showing his fear of death. He once said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And, this, and the same, it's true for other people. You remember a guy by the name of Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary was a former Harvard professor. He came to prominence in the 1960s, if you recall, for his experimentation with psychedelic drugs. He was diagnosed with terminal cancer in January of 1995. He then turned his impending death into a celebration of sorts. He announced that he would commit suicide on the Internet, on the World Wide Web. He was going to show America that death was not to be feared, but enjoyed. But as death drew near, the act wore thin. You know, a partner in Leary's psychedelic research recalls looking for long periods into his eyes and seeing no one looking back. And he remembers seeing how far back he was beyond his theater piece of die. Leary did not commit suicide. He died privately. A lady friend who was with Leary when he breathed his last writes that he shook with fear and sobbed with regrets and loneliness. He became nasty, became hateful. In the final tragic act of Leary's life, fear stole the show. Dear ones, against all that stands the words of Jesus Christ. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Dear ones, Jesus Christ came to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Believers in Christ are freed forever from Satan's bondage. And that should be of great comfort for any of God's people who are afflicted. Well, there's one more transaction which Jesus accomplished for the redeemed and we see it here in the concluding verses verses 16 through 18 Jesus restores us when we fail you know if it seems that the writer here has sort of drifted from his intent to show the superiority of Jesus over angels verse 16 brings us back directly to the point he says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You see, it's only by living as a man that Jesus could fully sympathize with and therefore help us who struggle with great temptation on our way to glory. You know, the term here, offspring of Abraham, I think it clearly envisions Paul's declaration over in Galatians chapter 3. If you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And we note here that this help for Abraham's struggling descendants is not offered to angels who are neither redeemed nor are they the offspring of Abraham. But it's constantly available to those who come to Jesus as their merciful and faithful high priest. You know, the record of the four Gospels gives us all the details 
of how Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect. Every day he was tempted. Just like us, he, he lived in a sinful world. He knew disappointments and sorrows, physical pains and frustrations of spirit. He got tired and sore. He often longed for the comforts of home. He was lied to, falsely accused, slandered, argued with, disliked, hated, cheated. And through all of these immense earthly temptations, he never wavered for a second. He never sinned. And because of that, he was able to satisfy God's wrath against sinners. You know, propitiation is the word used here. It's a good word to know. You know, it relates, propitiation relates to the world of sacrifices, like the word substitution does. But unlike substitution, which refers primarily to what Jesus did in reference to us, he died in our place, he was our substitute, propitiation describes that death in terms of its bearing upon God. God hates sin. He will not be in the presence of sin. And so propitiation, it refers to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in which the justified wrath of God against sinners was turned aside and the love of God was enabled to go out and save sinful man. That's propitiation. And because he satisfied God's wrath against sin, you see, Jesus can't effectively intercede before the Father for any of us who bring our burdens to him, who believe in him. The genuine humanity of Jesus reminds him continually of the way temptation feels to us when we're under assault and his propitiation overcomes any limitation of help caused by our sins so that he can uphold us with both sympathy and integrity before the Father. You know, Jesus says in his first, John says in his first epistle, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Dear ones, a high priest who has actually, not just symbolically, but actually removed your sins, and with that also removes the barrier which those sins erected between you and God. Now that's a high priest worth having. That's a high priest who can give you real help when you fail, when you, when you have need for it, when you're afflicted. You know, I have been reminded a number of times of late as I've studied this passage this week of just how paltry, how low, and how unworthy a view of man, of human beings, many if not most people have come to have in our day. Now, it's no doubt an unwitting change, I think, in many cases. It's the result of this incessant propaganda that for whatever reason present man as little more than a, a welter of sensual desires a slave to forces beyond his control, whose existence is, is unrelated to anything eternal, 
or transcendent. Now, we live in an entertainment culture that panders to the less noble aspects of human life. We live in a porn culture that panders to the lowest interests of his mind and of his heart. Man is, in this view, merely another animal. You know, even though he may be a little bit more intelligent or a little bit more powerful. The theory of evolution, the practice of abortion, sexual promiscuity, the breakdown of the family, and of, and of healthy relationships generally. You know, this tendency to compare men to machines in our technological society. The estimation of man as a unit of consumption in this ubiquitous advertising of our consumer culture. All of this and more has reduced man to something small. But that's not how God sees us. Not at all. God says here that we are not just an evanescent wisp, here today and gone tomorrow. You know, we're not just another animal seeking food and sex and warmth and other basic pleasures until our existence is extinguished and we're forgotten. No. Dear ones, by the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, God bestowed upon us a dignity which upon the angels he bestowed not. And that's a, that's a tremendous thing. You know, the greatest thing that ever happened in heaven or on earth happened not for angels, but for man. Not to help angels, but to help human beings. Not to save angels, but to save the seed of Abraham. No fallen angel has ever been or ever shall be saved by the humiliation of the Son of God, by taking upon himself a human nature and by his death on the cross. All that was done for men and women, for boys and girls, not for angels. The greatest thing, miracle that ever occurred was performed not for the sake of angels, but for the sake of human beings. Dear ones, we will never understand the world in which we live or our own lives, nor will we Make of them what we should unless we remember the importance God places upon the lives of human beings and the great thing he did to save them and restore them to their true glory as those made to know him. So this marvelous section concludes. The writer completes his arguments. How can we neglect such a great salvation from this Jesus who has recaptured for all who come to him our lost heritage, who has recovered our lost unity with God the Father, who has lifted through the ultimate personal sacrifice the terrible burden of sin and guilt which lies on all of us, and who offers to us each day an inner supply of strength and wisdom for our journey through life. No angel could ever do that, but our Savior can, and He does. 
Oh, what a perfect Savior He is. There is no other. And I present Him to you this morning. Let me leave you this morning with these, with the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's one of the great Reformed confessions of the 6th century. And I pray that it will be a comfort to you. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer the Catechism gives is this, that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. May we do that. May we consciously live henceforth unto this founder of our salvation, this perfect Savior, this Jesus who has done these great works for us. May God make it so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel truth of this wonderful passage. We would ask that you help us to understand it, help us to be clear in our minds about the issues involved with the Lord Jesus' person, and especially the implication that he is fully human and fully divine for our worship, for our assurance, for our trust. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.